0: Our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 35. This is found on page 818 and 819 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take the one that you'll have in your hand because it is a gift from us. He, Jesus, put another parable before them saying... Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Father in heaven, we do pray just that, um, that you would have us, uh, give us ears to hear. And that in hearing we would truly understand and bear um, much fruit as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit, for his glory. Amen. Well, every day, millions of Christians around the world pray the Lord's Prayer. We often pray it here at Christ's community, asking for God's kingdom to come, his will to be done. And and in fact, given the number of people in churches and time zones, uh, it's not unrealistic to think that at any given moment, on any given day, at least someone, somewhere, is praying these words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it isn't just today, of course, either, right? Christians have been praying this prayer for 2,000 years. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Through the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Through the Middle Ages... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Through the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, through world wars and cold wars. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Through diseases and famine, through war and revolutions on six continents and dozens of countries and hundreds of people, groups and languages, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And and all of this leads us to a big question, which is, Aren't you just a little disappointed with Jesus and his kingdom? Wasn't it supposed to be better than this, better with him? I mean, if Jesus is so good, why is his kingdom so uninspiring, so, so weak, so fragile? If the good news of Jesus is so good, why are things still so bad? Why does the kingdom need so much explanation? Why does it seem so often that despite these prayers that the kingdom would come, that God's will would be done, that the kingdom hasn't come, that it isn't coming, that God's will isn't being done? If the kingdom is so good, why are things still so bad? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, um, or if you've been away from church for a while and you're just coming back, maybe, um, or maybe you're just here, you consider yourself a Christian, but you're a bit skeptical. Maybe this is one of the reasons why. Maybe one of the reasons why you find Jesus in the church so implausible is that things seem to still be so bad. If you've ever asked these kinds of questions, you wouldn't be the first. Everyone who, who heard Jesus when he walked the earth, they, they loved his miracles, his authority, but his kingdom? It was just confusing. It, it didn't add up compared to real life. It didn't add up to compared to what people expected a kingdom to be. And if you were a first century Jew and you were asked, what would the kingdom of God be like? What is the kingdom of heaven? You probably would have responded like this. It's when God comes back through his chosen servant, the Messiah, and wipes out Israel's enemies, so Rome, and makes Israel the most powerful nation on earth. It's when God reestablishes his reign on earth. So you have to understand they were disappointed with Jesus. I mean, here's this guy who can do pretty much anything. He can heal the sick. He can cast out demons. He can cleanse lepers. He teaches with authority and clarity that that no one has had since Moses, and yet he goes around loving the Romans, the tax collectors, the oppressors. And even when the people who are following him try to get this thing moving, there's this moment in the gospel where he's fed all of them and and they want to make him their king. Instead of accepting that and having him rally behind them, he rebukes them and flees. The crowds around Jesus, though he's very popular, they have to be thinking, Jesus, come on, let's get on with this. Now is the time to bring in the kingdom. Let's make Israel great again. Jesus, being the brilliant teacher that he is, though, anticipates this. He he understands that our expectations of him and what he's doing will not always align with the reality of who he is and what he's doing and perhaps even more significantly how he's doing it. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus telling us a series of stories, parables, that address why the kingdom seems so disappointing and why it's better than anything else. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this part of Matthew chapter 13. We're going to see why the kingdom seems so disappointing and why it's better than anything else. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower and the soils and thought about what do parables do, how do they work, and Jesus continues this week speaking to the crowds in parables, and he tells them three parables to get at why the kingdom can seem so disappointing, and then he tells them two more about why it's better than anything else. So first, Jesus gives three parables about the kingdom and how it can seem so disappointing. The first parable that Jesus tells is about wheat and weeds, And he says, the kingdom is like this. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, and you see they're disappointed in what's happened. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. See, the kingdom, Jesus says, it's like a farm, a farm that has both wheat and weeds. In other words, the kingdom can seem so disappointing because it's mixed. It contains wheat and also weeds. And in Jesus' context, the weeds or the tares were probably a plant called Darnell. And Darnell is part of the the rye family, and it produces a poisonous black seed. Now, when the plants are growing, though, it's difficult to tell them apart. The roots intertwine in the soil, so it's almost impossible to remove the weeds without damaging the wheat also. But when the plants are fully grown and ready to be harvested, the difference becomes much more obvious, and you can cut them all down together and then easily separate out the wheat from the darnel. Jesus explains later in the passage that the, the field is the world and the good seed are the sons and daughters of the kingdom, those who have placed their trust and their hope in Jesus, this unexpected, unlikely Messiah. And the weeds are those who have aligned themselves with the, this enemy, this evil one. This is another moment in the Gospels where Jesus makes a pretty stark, stunning statement. He did this back in, 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 uh, in chapter 12 as well, where he basically says, if you're, you're either with me or you're against me. Jesus doesn't give us sort of a third neutral category. You're either with me or you're against me, he says. And Jesus says there's a counterfeit, an enemy working in the midst of the kingdom. And he says, I don't plan to deal with that until much later. And so the two kingdoms grow together. And the reason that the farmer waits, waits to deal with these weeds, is to show mercy. Mercy. He doesn't want to destroy any wheat, and he's delaying for our good, for your good. We have to be careful about being too eager to have God come and destroy all those evil people out there somewhere, because as Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, reminded the Jews in a letter, in his letter to the Romans, the Jews were feeling superior to the pagans, and Paul reminds them, do not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, His forbearance, His patience, they're they're an overflow of His merciful character and they are provided so that many, many would be led to repentance. So we have to guard ourselves about about being prideful and thinking, now that I'm a Christian God, you can come and rip out all the weeds because if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, what, what do you think that you were before? You were a weed. God in his mercy didn't tear you out. You were a weed headed for judgment and he showed mercy. See, Jesus' kingdom can seem disappointing because it's mixed. And it will be until the end. So expect opposition. See, not everything growing in the field belongs to God. Not everything is aligned with his goals and his purposes. So so don't blame him. There's an enemy. Jesus calls him the evil one. And as you read through the story of the Bible, it's clear from beginning to end that evil has a supernatural origin, a supernatural element to it. And recently Rachel and I have been watching the the Netflix original show Daredevil, about the superhero character. It's a really thoughtfully written show. It's not for the faint of heart in terms of violence. But in this show, Rachel and I are watching it, and toward the end of the second season, it kind of takes this this turn toward the supernatural in the the evil. And we were sort of lamenting this because we were like, a lot of these superhero shows, it's like they go on long enough, and then it kind of gets into this weird supernatural stuff. And we're like, can't they just keep fighting crime? But as we talked about it, we realized that so many films and movies and our culture and shows go that direction because in our cultural context, even in our Christian cultural context, we largely dismiss the supernatural realm, certainly a malevolent one at least, and yet somehow we know, we know deep down that the problem is more than just Wilson Fisk or The Punisher or a Japanese crime syndicate. There is real supernatural evil in the world. We know it. And it comes out in our stories even if we deny it in our science. And because there is an evil one, an evil one sowing weeds, sometimes it looks like Jesus is losing. Sometimes it looks like things are going backwards and not forward. Sometimes it seems like the prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, is going unanswered. So don't be surprised by this. Jesus said it would be this way. Wheat and weeds together. And also, don't withdraw from the field, from the world. Remember that Jesus says, let them grow together. Don't don't cloister yourself off. Yes, we as a church are to be a counterculture, an alternate society, but a counterculture for the common good. In the book of Jeremiah, God calls his people to live a life of flourishing, even as they live in the exile, exiled in the city of their enemy in Babylon. So what Jeremiah 29 says, That's what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry sons Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will too prosper. The field is mixed. So don't be surprised When you experience opposition, Jesus said it would be this way. Next, Jesus tells another parable about seeds and plants, and then one about baking and bread. And they reveal that the kingdom can seem disappointing because it starts so small. The kingdom can seem disappointing because it starts off so small. Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed, this super tiny thing that then grows into a large plant. But at first it seems so small, so insignificant, so fragile, something that can easily be eaten by the smallest bird. But when it is fully grown, becomes a place that birds can make their nests in. And similarly, the, the kingdom is like a woman who's, who's making bread. She hides a little bit of leaven. It's not the same as yeast. It's, it's like a lump of fermented dough. Sort of like if you ever got one of those bags of like friendship bread. eyes a little bit like, should I actually make this or not? Um, but it's this little bit of, of, of dough that's already been fermented. And, and they would knead that in to this large loaf. And, and slowly, almost imperceptibly, it permeates the whole thing and causes it to rise. Jesus says that's how the kingdom is. It may not look like much now. It certainly didn't look like much when Jesus was first saying these words. But one day, he says, it will be unparalleled. It will be pervasive. We want victory now. Jesus offers you a victory then. Jesus calls us to take the long view. There's a reason why the Bible talks so much about long-suffering We sort of want surgery for the world, just a quick fix. But Jesus offers seed and a lump of dough. So don't expect dramatic change overnight or even over weeks or centuries. It's slow and steady growth. Almost imperceptible as it grows, but it is growing. Have you ever gone back to the neighborhood where you grew up and driven through the streets? Are always surprised at how much larger the trees look like 10, 20, 30, 40 years from the last time you were there? I mean, the trees were growing the whole time you were there, but you were, you were too close to see it. And this is where history and a global perspective can be so encouraging when you're discouraged or frustrated by the seeming slow progress of the kingdom. Because just think about it. We're sitting in a church in the middle of the United States 2,000 years and 6,500 miles and an ocean and multiple culture and languages away from when Jesus was first alive. And yet the kingdom has, has reached here. It's grown. Even here. And it hasn't just grown in the past. It's growing now. Our partners with the Eleventh Hour Network in northeastern Kenya regularly see many people coming to Christ from staunch Islamic communities, despite incredible persecution and hardship. The kingdom is growing. Closer to home, just think about Christ's community—one little church in Kansas City that started off 27 years ago with a few dozen people in a little office building in Prairie Village. It now is five campuses across the city, hundreds and hundreds of people coming each week. Or even just the story of the Brookside campus. Three and a half years ago there was just a hundred of us, adults and kids all together in one service, and now less than four years later, two services, regularly over four hundred people gathering. The kingdom is growing. One thing we often say around here at Christ Community is we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what God can do in a decade, or certainly in a century or a millennium. The kingdom starts small slow. We should expect slow progress. The kingdom can seem disappointing because it's mixed, because it's small, and also because it isn't for everyone. This is the parable of the net. This was one that we didn't read earlier. It comes toward the end of the chapter, but the parable of the net. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, Jesus says. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. The kingdom, Jesus says, it's like fishing with a dragnet. And if you were fishing in the Sea of Galilee this way, you would take two boats out and have a net between them, and then you would work your way back to shore, and the net would just drag in everything, and you would pull it into the shore, and you'd have to sort out the fish because it collected all kinds of stuff. But you couldn't sell every kind of fish. People wouldn't eat everything that you caught. Um, Some of the fish you couldn't eat, some of it just people didn't like, other of it was unclean, and Jews couldn't eat it. So you'd have to sort the fish. The ones that you could sell, you could use, and then the ones that you couldn't. Any fisherman understood the need to separate the fish. And Jesus says the kingdom is, is a dragnet. It, it scoops up everyone, and then it separates. And, and here in the West, in the 21st century, that's just about the worst thing you can say about Jesus' kingdom, right? No one wants to hear a judgment is coming, a separation is coming. That that's what Jesus' kingdom is doing, its separating people. We want a kingdom for everyone, all inclusive. But Jesus points out here and all over the Gospels, the kingdom is ultimately only for those who truly desire him, that he's not going to force himself on anyone. And if in the end, certain people continue to reject him, there won't be a place for them. So we need to expect the judgment to come. Again, this isn't something we like to hear, but deep down it is something that we need something that we want. You see, if life just ends with death and there is no afterlife or judgment of any kind, evaluation, then then in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter what kind of person you were, whether you lived an exemplary life or whether you lived an absolutely miserable, abysmal life. Or on the other hand, if there is an afterlife, but only a good one—that that there's no that no matter how you lived, that everyone just gets the same amazing paradise. That those who are absolutely evil live in this paradise alongside of those who spent their life on behalf of others. And there's a massive cosmic injustice. And Jesus uses really vivid language here. Fiery furnace, weeping of gnashing of teeth. And, and I, I wish that I could soften that a bit. Make it seem more palatable. Tell you that, well, if you just understood the context or the background, that you'd understand that Well, Jesus wasn't, it was, but I can't. It's important to remember that God will be judged. It's also important to remember that he is the one who will be judge, And doing the judging at the end of the time, he's not calling you and me to do that judging here and now. But this is ultimately good news because in the end, God's wrath is simply his settled opposition to sin and evil in the world. And he's promised that in the new heavens and in the new earth, he will not allow those things to spoil his creation again. Remember, Matthew tells this parable, he tells us the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, he's telling these parables on the same day as the events that happened in Matthew chapter 12. What happened in Matthew chapter 12? This is where the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of doing the work of Satan. You see, God will not in the end let selfish and rebellious people destroy his new creation. He's gone to extraordinary measures, sending his own son to die on the cross in order to rescue and restore people. But in the final moment, if they refuse him and thereby default, aligning themselves with his enemy, Jesus says that their fate will be the same as that enemy. These are hard words from Jesus. The kingdom isn't for everyone. It's mixed and rife with hardship and Opposition. It's slow and sometimes hard to even see, hard to even believe God is doing anything at all. The kingdom of Jesus has come to offer you is this. And that's why, when we're really honest with ourselves, we are sometimes disappointed in it. It seems like it should be better than this already. So, yes, the kingdom does seem disappointing at times. Really, it does. And and if you've maybe only been a Christian for a short time, if you stick around long enough, you'll see this. But why is it worth absolutely everything? Well, Jesus gives us two more quick parables to tell us the answer. So listen to these two parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field Again, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, the kingdom, it's like a great treasure that's worth giving up anything to get. And this is the point. Why is the kingdom better than anything else? Because it's unsurpassable in its value and unparalleled in its joy. First, it's unsurpassable in its value. Notice in the parable of the the pearl of great value, this pearl of great price. The merchant, he's an expert in pearls. He he spent his whole life dealing in these pearls. And when he finds this one incredible one, he liquidates everything he has and he gets it. And at first it seems like that makes sense, right? He, He liquidates all that he has. He gives up everything he has. And now he has this one incredible pearl of great value but the more I thought about that this week, it's actually, that kind of seems a little unwise. If you think about it, right? Because now he has this pearl, but he didn't have any money or resources to buy food or, or clothes or housing. He just has this one thing of beauty and value. I think this is part of what Jesus is getting at. That if you have this one thing, you don't need anything else. This guy sells everything he has for the one pearl. He now has no money for food, no money for housing, no money for anything. All he has is the pearl and that's it. And, And yet it seems that that's all he needs. It's beauty, it's worth, it's enough. And this is Jesus' point. If you get this one thing, you don't need anything else. If you have Jesus in his kingdom, you don't need anything else. It's unsurpassable in its value. And it's also unparalleled in its joy. So notice in the parable of the field, when the man finds the treasure, he goes in joy to sell everything he has in order to buy the field. Why? Because in that field, there is this great fortune. And this is the, kind of the second nuance to this. With the pearl, it's clear, if you have this one thing, you don't need anything else. But here Jesus tells us in the parable of the field, if you have this one thing, you also have everything else. When the guy finds the treasure in the field and he sells everything he has, what he gets is everything else. He gets this massive fortune that was way more than what he had before. He has a fortune of unimaginable joy. He gives up all he has, but he gains far more. When you put the kingdom first, you get everything else. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount a few chapters ago, O you of little faith, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You Lewis put it this way, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first And we lose both first and second things. When you put the kingdom first, you have everything. When you put the kingdom second, not only do you get the kingdom, ultimately you lose that thing which you put ahead of the kingdom as well. So then the response is simple. Give up everything to get the kingdom And this is what's so interesting about this set of parables and and how they interact together. Because all along these first three parables we talked about, the kingdom is mixed, it's slow, it's, it's not for everyone. But the response, it's decisive, it's fast, it's wholehearted. See, when you get a glimpse, even a tiny sense that Jesus and his kingdom is your only hope, you can't help but run after it with all that you have and all that you are. The reason is because the king of this kingdom went into the fire for you. He took the punishment that we, all of us who are and were weeds deserve. He took the weeping and gnashing of teeth that we deserve so that his kingdom, instead of representing judgment for us, becomes an object of unsurpassable wealth and great joy. Is it slower than you wanted? Is it harder than you thought it would be? Does it cost more than you originally imagined? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. When you find a kingdom like this, a treasure like this, you give up everything to get it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to understand the unsurpassable worth of your kingdom and its glory? Would you make us patient in the waiting? Would we be reminded that you told us it would be this way, that it would be mixed, it would be slow, it would be not for everyone, that people would reject it? And yet, would we not be discouraged because we know the unsurpassable joy of what you've begun already and what will be in full one day? In Jesus' name, amen.